This is our history. This is our legacy. Thank you so much, guys, for being a fabulous audience. And now we are on to act two of our night together. Um, as Sky mentioned, we really are very fortunate that in 2024, we have built relationships with these wonderful partners who are going to bring to life through uh, readings um, our, 2023, our 2023 Expand the Canon list, many of the plays. And so I have four of the fabulous partners with me on stage. Uh, and so let me just shout them out one by one. We have the uh, Fabulous Lou Moreno, Artistic Director with Intar Theater. Yes. <laughs> we have the terrific Nicola Murphy Dubay with uh, the Director of Audience and Play uh, Development with Irish Rep Theater. We have the extraordinary Jesse Austrian, Co-Artistic Director of Fiasco Theater. And we have the superb Devin Brain, a producing director with The Acting Company. I, I had a goal to have all my adjectives be uh, alliterative, but uh, it didn't work out, so <laughs> I tried my best. All right, guys, thank you so much for taking time with us this evening to be with us. I want to start off by uh, handing the mic to you one by one, and if y'all could just share one sentence about what is um, the most fantastic, what is the best part of what you do with your company and what your company is doing. Great. I will start. Um, I think the most exciting thing about the acting company is that we tour. Each year we do two shows, one a classic and one a new text, and we tour them nationally into very small communities and very large ones, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I think the coolest part about our theater company is actually our structure itself. Um, I feel a little bit like Willy Wonka when you walk down 52nd Street and you come up to this big, red, unnamed building and come into a bright, white, ugly elevator and get to come up to the fourth floor and go, what the fuck? <laughs> and then we give you magic. It's kind of great. Uh, I think one of the coolest things about um, Irish Rep is that we're the only year-round um, theater company in New York that's devoted exclusively to producing Irish and Irish-American writers. Um, and particularly in my role, uh, my job is to develop new plays. So um, that's what I'm doing and loving at the moment. And our building mate. You're in our building too. <coughs> 500 West 52nd. We're on West 22nd Street. Oh, you're Irish rep, not the Irish <laughs> rep. Yes, we do sorry, always sorry. get confused, but we're, we're on 22nd that. Street, all good. We love them, they're friends of ours, it's all good. <laughs> I know you, don't I know? <laughs> I think the coolest thing about what Fiasco Theatre does is that we prioritize joy. We believe that the way something is made translates to what an audience receives, and so we try uh, to make something with as much joy as possible, and then offer that up, creating a joyful relationship between the stage and the audience. 
Awesome. Wow, you guys are amazing. Uh, and that is just a great teaser to why we should not only check out the readings that y'all are doing in uh, collaboration with us, but also just your seasons in general, because you guys are doing some fantastic, fabulous work. Um, so, Nicola, and I, I, for some reason in my head, I always want to say Nicola, so forgive me, but Nicola. That's okay. It's my Southern American accent coming out too strong. Um, so, I'm really excited. You guys are going to, uh, in March, do a reading of The Sons of Aaron by Alicia Sheridan uh, Lefanu, which I'm sure I butchered her last name. Um, but I wanted to know what <laughs> might... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what might have, what attracted you all to this particular play and this work and what made you excited about it and, and want to say yes to doing a stage reading of it? Well, I think like just first and foremost, reading a play that was written in the 1800s by a woman was a yes in of itself, just because I have read so little um, in that era by women. And, you know, in particularly, obviously, an Irish woman, we... We have, even in the contemporary Irish canon, you know, Brian Friel, Sean O'Casey, um, Samuel Beckett, the lads, as we call them. And, and we love them. They're amazing writers. But, you know, there has been, um, as there have been also in America, like sort of a lack of support and, and production of writing by female um, playwrights. So that in of itself was really interesting to me. And, and then secondly, it's a play about prejudice against Irish people um, by the English. You know, this was written at a time where Ireland was still under English rule um, and our culture, language and, you know, traditions were under threat of being eroded. So I think it's also really interesting because that's, you know, not the current narrative, sort of revisiting that. Um, and I feel quite strongly that we have a responsibility to recognize when that's happening in other um, cultures and demographics. And so it's there's something really poignant about that aspect of it as well. Um, so yeah, lots of reasons to say yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Devin, I'm gonna throw the same question to you. You, uh, the acting company is gonna produce Intozaki Shange's work. She's best known for, for Colored Girls, but you guys are going to do a reading of Spell Number Seven. So what was it about this work that, wanted, that excited you guys, made you wanna say yes to it? Well, uh, years ago, the acting company actually has a relationship with her. We commissioned her to write a play about 20 years ago. When I was reading this one, uh, I was excited because, I mean, honestly, it sort of scares the shit out of me. Um, her verse is remarkable, but it is both a sledgehammer and a scalpel somehow simultaneously. It is, lifts up these cultural stereotypes that are hard to read, and I can't imagine how difficult they will be to hear out loud or to see on a stage. And at the same time, it then drops a mask and listens to people talk as they are, and yet somehow is still poetry. Uh, I'm really sort of fascinated to see what it is, to be real honest, which is what I find the most exciting about it. Yeah, plus it will probably 
enrage a good number of my board members, so <laughs> that's always entertaining. We love a pissed off board. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, <laughs> Jesse, I'm gonna throw that question with you. You guys are using, are, are uh, doing a reading of Susan Glassbell's uh, The Verge. She's probably best known for, or at least for those of us who did her in college <laughs> with trifles. And so what excited you about this work? What would, you know, what really piqued your interest in terms of wanting to bring it to a uh, stage reading? Yeah, reading this play was just amazing because it is this Tennessee Williams-like female lead, like Blanche Dubois level size scale, like reading it from the actor's perspective, it's like, oh, this would be incredibly daunting and scary, but exciting to take on. What a tour de force role. And there are other great roles as well, but it is this really powerful female role of a woman in an oppressive American system um, that is very reminiscent of what I think Streetcar is trying to do, but is written by a woman. And I just couldn't believe I had never heard of it. Um, and I didn't read Susan Glassbell in college. I wish I had. I, I'm like only learning about Susan Glassbell now. Um, which is why I'm so grateful for the work that you all do and for this list because, you know, oppression, like buried these plays for a long time. And um, it takes work to get them back into belonging. Um, and so I'm just very excited for actors to get to take this on and to hear this play and bring this role to life. Thank you. Oh, this is fabulous. All right, so my dear friend Lou, um, what about Day of Swallows? Uh, and so Garen talks a little bit about uh, why they found this work so fascinating. What made you all as a uh, theater company decide that you definitely want to give to give it a stage reading? Um, so I, running a Latino theater company, it's been uh, challenging to, to wrestle with the classics because we run right into colonialism when it comes to a lot of those writers. So it's always been fraught with, should we really be doing this? Also, we have such a, um, uh, a vibrant and vital part of the American canon and young uh, Latino writers that I feel incredibly uh, responsible, ir irresponsible if I'm not funding them, if I'm not paying them. Um, that said, we also have a long history with, at least in, I mean, my major charge since I took over the company 13 years ago, was that I wanted our playwrights to be in conversation with, or emerging playwrights to be in conversation annually with legacy writers, what we would call legacy writers. So you, like last year, we did uh, Mariana Carreño King um, in partnership with uh, Julissa Contreras, who's a brand new writer, had never been produced before. Um, again, this year, we're working with Florencio Lozano and Jose Rivera. You know, two, you know, Jose is arguably one of the American classics. Um, I'm not sure how you guys define classics there. But what excited me about this was we also have a, uh, what I call a, a new to New York young actor company, which means you can be any age as long as you're new to New York trying to build your theatrical community. Um, and having them be in conversation with the classics and then having one that was presented to me that came from not a guy, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or a white guy, was very exciting. Um, and, and also kind of maybe taking, taking a little bit of the, the mythology around Latino theater that all things begin and end with magic realism yeah. and Jose Rivera. Yeah. Um, 
and I, this, is, this is being recorded, is that right? Is this going to be, be a podcast? simulcast. Oh, great. This is going to be an awesome production meeting next week. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think Jose him, himself would say, like, I, I, he, the, he used the phrase, and then it got labeled on him. To see that phrase taken off of him and seeing it spread out in other ways made it exciting and gave us the avenue to come and really look at something else that was, you know, of a, you know, to be shady about it, you know, a dead playwright. You know, so that's why we were looking at it. This is so fantastic. So if you, again, everyone, each and every one of us should uh, try to check out the work of this of all these theater companies because as we're seeing from why they chose uh, to engage with Expand the Canon, the work that you all are doing is so phenomenal. And we, I mean, we're great. I, I moved, I'm new to New York, um, <laughs> and I moved uh, this past summer. And this is why I moved to New York, because it's a magnet for um, people and places and spaces that can engage um, with this level of art and this level of conversation about um, who we are as a society and communities and as individual human beings. So I'm really grateful for that. And that kind of segues into my next question, which, um, you know, as we can tell, these folks are bold, their companies are bold in what they engage in, what they produce. Um, and you know, I what we wanted to ask was, you know, what is really working today in classics, and what do you see as missing? So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that back to you, Devin, because I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, maybe. Uh, Lou. The, uh, Lou, I'm sorry, Lou. Sorry, oh, forgive okay. me. Forgive me, uh, Lou. I'm gonna throw that back to you um, in terms of, you know, what do we feel like is is really working with what we're seeing with classics today, but what do we see that might be missing? Um, I, I do reside mostly in the new play world. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of the uh, new American plays do harken back to the classics. There's a lot of adaptations that come out of it. Um, I don't believe that, you know, I mean, there, I guess I should say there is some truth that there is nothing new in the American theater. There's nothing new in the theater because it's constantly going back to itself. Not that we are not being innovative, but I don't mean it that way. I just mean a lot of these stories are told and told again and again for, for the right reasons. Um, I still see that. I don't know that I can speak clearly enough about what's happening with classical theater and what's being produced now. Um, I do think that we have, in the moneyed theaters, um, and I would argue maybe that none of us are one of the moneyed theaters. Um, <laughs> um, I think they're just fucking lazy. I, mean, I don't think that they're actually. You can go out for that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I think that we have a real problem. I mean, I think Broadway's, you know, run by real estate agents. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> this is being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I called um, you Devin, so no, they like Devin just wait him for What an interesting name to run a Latino theater company, Devin. <laughs> um, but I, I, I just think we're, we're really in, a, in an exciting, I think it's actually an exciting time for the theater companies right now that are art level. Um, not, I think, Intar itself, I can't speak for everybody, actually thrived during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, miraculously, we went through hard times. Um, I think re-examining who we present to, how we present, and at what scale is, it is the right time right now. Yeah. Um, I think turn every, Broadway theater into you know a food court would be a great idea, so that there's multiple plays happening at our size, so that we're creating a lot more people working. Yeah. Um, pay attention, Mayor Adams. I saw that budget cut that came through today. 
Um, I mean, let's get real. These theater companies are the ones that are putting people on Broadway tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so I'm using this moment that doesn't produce classical theater. Just get them a soapbox. Yeah. Apologize. No, I'll, I'll pass the mic. Well said. I'm going to throw that question to you, Jesse. And, the, and I'm just going to, before I, before I do, I'm just going to uh, get one of the mantras that I'm from South Carolina. And to your point on laziness, uh, we used to say, if you bet on lazy, you're going to win every time. And I have definitely seen that in what you're talking about with the money theater. Uh, with, there's not a lot of really thinking about what needs to be um, what what the community needs to engage with the art with art. There's not a lot of understanding the moral duty that we have as artists, and it's a lot of oh well. I think we can sell a lot of tickets to Romeo and Juliet. Let's do it again for the hundredth and tenth time or whatever. So sorry, that's leading into you, Jesse. No, I, I just yeah. agree, and it's it's really exciting to be part of this conversation. And thanks thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be up here. Um, I think this word classic makes me angry sometimes because I think it can like foster a, a laziness. But what's exciting to me about right now is that no one can predict that shit anyway, right? Like the old model never worked. It was crumbling anyway and the pandemic just accelerated that. And it's so it's clear. Like this this plane is crashing. <laughs> um, this plane being the capitalist system of American theater making. Um, and so on on my hopeful days, it's like, oh, well, it's really exciting actually to look around and see like who are the new thought leaders that are going to use this as an opportunity to think outside that box because you actually, I don't think, can bet on Romeo and Juliet to sell tickets or or a star casting your star as right. Like no one can actually predict that anymore, and we can't say like, well, let's just hire a consultant to tell us what to do because they don't know, um, and that's really exciting. I'll say from my perspective, one thing that's exciting to me about classics right now is I feel like there is a, not everywhere, but there is this sort of lack of preciousness with old plays that through new lenses that I find really exciting. I'm thinking about Fat Ham, thinking about The Octoroon, thinking about Adini, Aditi Brennan-Capil's Imogen Says Nothing, um, about, I, I feel like from my perspective, American theater still has this like chip on our shoulder about like leaving Britain and being like, but we can do it well too. Look, we're doing it. We're really doing it. Um, and it's like, I sort of feel like we're finally being like, no, actually, who knows what that sounded like? Like, what does classic even mean? And it's very thrilling. Like, like you were saying, Lou, like these stories are old and to see new playwrights take these stories and turn them on their head and be really not precious about them, I find very exciting. To put them in conversation with newer voices is very exciting to me. Beautiful, thank you. Uh, Nicola, um, during your time working as an artistic leader, what have you found to be frustrating about working with classics or producing classic works? Um, and what do you, and this, is some, this is in the same vein of what we were talking about, and uh, what are you hoping that the field will have in the future? Um, well, good question. <laughs> I think, you know, like um, what you were saying, there is a lot of possibility right now, which is very exciting. Um, but I think, and, and we're losing some of that sort of sanctity and preciousness maybe surrounding um, classic work. So I think um, that has been sort of a point of frustration. And also just there being sort of perceptions about things that, you know, we can never predict what is going to work and you know taking chances on things has a great um you know return sometimes and being in the world of new play development that's obviously sort of my area of focus and 
there's so many things we're seeing that are just kind of being taken away from that. And it's so important that we support new rising and allow people to have their work produced. You know, maybe it does great, maybe it doesn't, but we, we need to keep keep going with it and, and keep, um, you know, allowing people to grow and develop as artists um, rather than just trying to bet on a short thing. So that that's something I suppose that has eternally been frustrating within theater um but i do feel that there there is a great moment of possibility um moving forward yeah thank you thank you um devin we devin not lou devin (laughs) Uh, we've heard about um so one thing during our process, and especially because Hedgepig has been around for about 10 years and the Expand the Canon initiative, um, as we mentioned in the first act, has been around for uh, since 2020. And so we've engaged with a lot of producers across the country. Um, and sometimes what they say is that, again, to the same vein of what we were talking about uh, in the previous question, that uh, it's just such a challenge to produce works that are beyond the blockbuster titles because of the financial pressures and the commercial pressures, they need to get butts and seats. Um, what would you say to producers who maybe you know are citing those as reasons of why they can't engage um, some of the works of Expand the Canon or other plays that really deserve to be platformed? Wow, am I the worst person on the stage to ask that question to because <laughs> I have produced Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and Hamlet within the last five years. Um, Not Taming of the Shrew, though. No, just kidding. (laughs) Fuck Taming of the Shrew. Um, I mean, I will tell you what our cheat is, because the acting company functions in a very strange way. We we don't pitch to a specific audience. We don't have a, a single community. We have to pitch shows that go into communities across the country and communities with small towns in Iowa and big cities in Florida and mountain cities in Oregon. Like, we pitch to a lot of different places and more than that, we pitch to the people that run the theater. So I do have this conversation on a pretty regular basis. I had theaters within the last six months not just tell me I couldn't do, you know, Shakespeare, they told me I wasn't able to produce Henry V or A Midsummer Night's Dream. So like the title shrink is happening even within the largest names in the sort of classical canon. The cheat that I have found is that we pair plays because the, the thing that we have found that convinces people to do a play is the story behind it. I mean, that's what most of us are doing. So we treat classic texts like new texts and we pair them with another play, generally someone we've commissioned to write something in response or in dialogue with one of the other plays and we produce them at the same time. So we use a classic title, sometimes Romeo and Juliet, to get a certain number of people to buy in and then we also share with them an exciting new writer's take on teenage love stories. I try not to commission too many plays about teen suicide, if at all possible, but (laughs) I can't say it hasn't happened. So we cheat. 
All right, Jesse. I just think that's so exciting because that, I mean, that's what I was going to say is like my theoretical answer is like, it doesn't mean you can't also do the other plays. Like your, your initiative is called expand the canon, not cancel the current canon and make a new canon, right? Like, <laughs> I hope this is all towards an eventual future where there isn't this like idea of canon that is, yeah. that is, in my opinion, kind of random, right? I love how you all define it as like a play that speaks to us. Um, and so I just think that's really exciting to pair because I also think rep is very exciting um, for the artists and audiences to get to come see two plays in conversation with each other with the same company and the same bodies to take on two perhaps very different um, takes on a, a similar idea. Excellent. <laughs> Good job, Devin. I love that. We're totally going to steal that as a pitch <laughs> to some people we start talking to. Um, so, Nicola, same question for you. Um, with, you know, what would you say to people who say that, you know, and I'm sure you may run into this with some of the playwrights that you all platform uh, to, not just the ones with Expand the Canon, but what would you say to producers of other companies who would say, oh, well, that person's not well known enough or that work is not well known enough and we really have to worry about getting, you know, uh, properties in that will bring audiences in? Um, well, I mean, I, I think that worry is real, you know, like post-COVID, I know that there's been, you know, a decimation to New York theater. Um, but what I would say is, you know, you have to also look at your audience base and who you're serving and who, you know, we go to the theater because we want to see our stories, you know, and ourselves reflected back to us. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that and who we're, um, you know, putting effort and time behind in regards to that and there is a whole new generation of theater goers that we also need to be thinking about you know we like what i said earlier about um some of the writers that we you know know and love in the sort of irish canon um we also need to be thinking about the next generation too and it's really important that yes we can you know have a season of brian freel like we're doing right now um three plays on our main stage um but we also want to do other stuff too and new work as well and so you know being able to kind of do both of those things um we have two spaces i know not every theater has that and you know that that is uh you know something that we're very grateful for but yeah it's it's you know you have to have a relationship with your audience and you have to be thinking about that so i think moving forward yeah and then i would say too one thing that i find very helpful with theater companies is also the relationship with your audience and then the relationship with who the possibilities of your audience too because there is you know i uh, i've come from some areas where there was a lot of elitism it's not as much in new york and like the south well maybe okay never mind don't give me that <laughs> but with the elitism with theater in terms of well sometimes the ticket prices is determines who can come to the door um but you know so many of these classic works deal with people who are marginalized and disenfranchised you know in the in the real meaning of the wor uh, word and those are people um to whom this these works will speak to because it's dealing with issues in it so thinking about ways that we can engage audiences beyond the typical you know um baby boom generation that has expendable money to go to the theater, but what would be the next generation of audiences, which Lou, I know you talked on about, and and also people who, you know, in the South where I'm from, there are black and white poor people who felt like the theaters, I'm just not invited, 
you know, and how do we engage those people to say, actually, you're represented in a lot of the work that you'll see here, and, and it's important for you to engage this work, too. This is not a question for anybody. I'm just kind of pointing out that this is sort of like the mantle that we're all taking on as theater artists and theater producers and leaders. Um, so um, I think maybe that was a clunky segue to my last question, which is why is this work essential? So I'll throw that to you, Lou. <laughs> I mean, I think what makes this work essential is you are trying to partner with the people that make it essential, the essential theater company. I think I view us, um, and I think probably everybody here um, on the stage views their, their theater as an essential part of the American theater writ large. Um, there are massive problems with communication between what theater is and what theater is out there to be consumed. Um, I think everything is driven to Broadway and that is an absolute mistake. Mm -hmm. Theater used to be a birthright of every New York City kid mm -hmm. and that is gone. Um, my my um, father-in-law recently passed away and he was, I'm, I'm giving him a big shout out right, right now because he was Anthony Alvarado and for those of you that went to school in the city in the 80s, he was your chancellor of education. Mm -hmm. He is the person that started all day kindergarten. He is the person that did all these things to bring theater and the arts to young kids, and he lasted a fucking year in that in the city. Like that's the problem, is that we are so driven by Wall Street and the people that come in and they live in the city for three to four years, or until their kids have to go to first grade, or until their kids have to go to middle school, and they get the fuck out. That's who drives the economy of our city. And until we can wrestle that back in the arts to pay and get these kids to see theater. Okay, can I, can I stay on my soapbox for one more minute? I apologize. So what we're doing this year is we have a new play coming in. Um, uh, can I talk about it? <laughs> we have a new play coming in that is about high school students. I believe I can. I'll come up with an answer in a minute. It's about high school students. And we are going to be doing two days a week with a 4.30 curtain specifically to bring in kids so they can come into the theater. On, it's got some adult themes to it, but they can come into the theater and have an adult experience mm -hmm. so that when they grow up and they think back at it, it's not fucking Sesame Street and a childish on-taking. It's actually a, a place for growth and maturing. So we're really trying to dedicate to get all of our seats sold to kids or to, to, to people that haven't graduated from high school yet. Um, so I think that's the kind of initiatives that need to be happening at our levels. Um, should we ha and, and Broadway's fine. And if they're not good. But these theaters who make Broadway what it is um, should be well-funded and well-attended by you know the kids that are going to be living in the city hopefully for the rest of their lives. Especially the kids living in the Bronx and Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. Yeah. No offense, Staten Island. <laughs> well, you know, no, because it was good that you pointed out the bur those boroughs because there's, there are arts deserts within this yeah. rich city. That, and, and so, yes. And all of our artists live out there. Yeah. They yeah. don't live in Manhattan Because we get a form in hand. Yeah. All right. So, well, I don't even so um, Jesse, let me throw that same question to you. Um, anything you want to say about why this work is important? Why this, this work of Expand the Canon is important to me is that it creates belonging for women identifying humans in the arts because 
we were always there. <laughs> like this graphic proves, right? And that's only 36. Um, but it takes effort, like what you all are doing. It takes finding that librarian <laughs> to get that one copy that hasn't been digitized. Um, but I just want to say thank you for doing that because that makes a difference, right? To that, that is the difference between trying to fit in and feeling belonging. Um, and it's on us. It's on the people already here, we as leaders, to create belonging, right? That can't be on the that can't be the burden of the new person. Um, and so that's why I think this work is important because step by step, it's creating a sense of belonging in theater. Perfect. Thank you so much. Same question, Nicola. Uh, well, I think this work is important because if this work is not done, we're losing so many amazing voices or, or we're at least not being exposed to as many voices as we can be um, in the way that we should be. And, you know, it is a great opportunity for connection, even us all just kind of sitting on this stage talking about things that are important to us and sort of struggles that we're all facing. Um, we don't always get to do that so I think that's really important and really powerful um, and just uh, yes um, as Jesse said you know knowing that these um, writers were always here is also really important um, you know to me personally and to to so many of us thank you Devin I'm gonna throw that question to you too why is this work important I mean I think that the reason I find just doing the older plays, the classics of the canon to be important is because if you engage with these texts with urgency and immediacy, you create something that speaks not only to the current moment, but connects every artist and audience member with the continuum of human experience. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that idea of classic has had a quite narrow definition these texts and stories can do that same thing while expanding even further the connections we feel so that we're not just connecting ourselves to 1600 white men, but also to everyone else that was writing during those periods. That's why I like both new work and looking at work that was written 400 years ago or 1,000 years ago or in Tazaki's work, which was written about 40 years ago. Right, right. Go ahead. I was just going to be snarky. I didn't want to do it. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> You've got yourself in trouble enough today. Um, all right, so if you want to check out what uh, NTAR is doing, what Irish Rep is doing, what the Atlantic Company is doing, um, what Fiasco is doing, please go to their websites. Um, you can go to our websites to see the dates of the readings. And thank you so much. Please give these wonderful, wonderful arts leaders and pioneers a great round of applause. Thank you, each and every one of you. And we love you guys. Yes, and I just want to say a few more thank yous, if you will um, bear with me. You can stand, do whatever. I, you guys are great. I'm going to start by thanking you. Um, so thank you to all of our panelists, which is also a way of saying thank you to all of our partners. Um, I would love to say there are a number of logos up here which are not represented here. They are not in New York, which is super cool. Um, so here in New York, obviously, you can see Sons of Aaron at Irish Rap in March. You can see The Verge with Fiasco and Classic Stage Company um, in April. 
is that? I don't know. Um, day of the Day of the Swallows at Intar in July, and you can see Spell Number Seven with the acting company in September. If you are not in New York, um, hi, live streamer people. Uh, thank you for being live streamed with us. You can also live stream our February reading, which is A New System of Freedom uh, by Charlotte Von Stein. I didn't throw in any of the writers before that. What am I doing? Um, but that's going to be in partnership with Island Shakespeare Festival, which is super cool. So thank you, Island Shakespeare Festival, for being a, oh, also, they agreed to partner with us for at least three years doing Expand the Canon Plays. So, yeah. Um, if you're on Whidbey Island uh, or near Seattle this summer, please go see them. And in February, you can see that reading live streamed. If you are in Virginia, you can see Adelinda at American Shakespeare Center in May. If you're in California, you can see Mother of eight, uh, 1084 with Bay Area Drama and City Lights Theater in June. And I just want to, I swear this is going to be really fast. Um, we could not do this without a lot of support. Those 7,761 plays would not be in our database uh, with not, without the help of so many people. So first, thanks to our other staff member who has not been on stage, Corey Oster. Woo! Um, and also our social media coordinator, Marika Lumpold. Thank you. Uh, of course, our reading committee and our research committee members, which again, seriously, we could not have those 7,000 plays without. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and our dramaturgs, which help research all these plays, which is incredible. Uh, our volunteers in our internal committees. Um, we have a couple committees working with us and we are so grateful for making that possible. Um, and we have some podcast editors. For those who subscribe to the podcast, we don't do this alone. We have brilliant people who help us and we are so grateful to you, some of whom are here, thank you. Um, and I will buy you a drink later. Uh, and we couldn't do it without our board members, of course, also. Love, thank you, thank you. And our sustaining donors, and our subscribers. You can go to Expand the Canon and subscribe and read all these plays, and please do, and I hope if this conversation didn't motivate you to do that, um, we're toast. So, <laughs> yes, follow the podcast, read the plays, join us for a drink if you're here. We're gonna go head over to Donnybrook and get up out of the hair of these lovely people that we will tip very well. Um, and just thank you for making this possible. This work is essential, as you all said, and I'm so grateful that you're all here. So. Um, thanks, live streamers. We'll hopefully see you soon, and hopefully I'll see you at the bar in a few. Woo. Oh. Yeah. 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 Yeah.